Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. Just warn you this morning right at the get-go, we are doing all of chapter 3. Whoa. Pray for me, even now. Now, this morning we're continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at how the people began to build. Our main text is Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 32, for some uh, brief context. In our study two weeks ago, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, as Nehemiah finally made his way into Jerusalem after coming from Shushan, we considered how the Lord stirred Nehemiah to see as he went around the city, as he inspected the brokenness, as he gauged kind of where the needs were at, because clearly there would have been areas that were more devastated than others. And so he was able to see that. He didn't distance himself from the damage, from the destruction. Uh, the Lord stirred him to see. Then in our study last week in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, we considered how the Lord stirred him to speak and then to stand. And as God did those things in Nehemiah's life, we also see how the people responded to Nehemiah's faith, to Nehemiah's confidence in his God, his testimony about the Lord, how the Lord's hand had been good upon him, the things that the Lord had stirred within King Artaxerxes even to provide everything necessary for the building to happen. We saw that the people were stirred out of a lot of years of complacency and apathy to want to rise up and to build. You know, it's so necessary for us to have godly, faith-filled people in our lives who see things that we do not see, whose voices we respect and trust, who can call us forward in the things of the Lord and maybe out of some things that we've settled into that God's going, I don't have that for you. That wasn't for me. God made Nehemiah this kind of voice and leader for the Jews there in Jerusalem. Before this, they couldn't see how the walls and gates would ever be rebuilt, but Nehemiah could. And his faith and confidence in the Lord did something in the hearts and minds of the people. And through Nehemiah, God was using him to call the people forward in the things that the Lord desired to do. And initially, even with the opposition we saw at the end of chapter 2, we see that this first bit of opposition didn't discourage or sideline the people after having already said, let us rise up and build and committing uh, to, to set their hands to this good work. But what we find is that this beginning stage was in a lot of ways blocks being built, stones being built, so to speak, in the spiritual walls of the people with their faith and their confidence in the Lord being built up from that fragile, broken-down place that it had already been in for far too long into a place of greater strength and firmness. Again, in chapter 2, verse 18, we're told that they set their hands to this good work. But now in chapter 3, we're going to see how that began to play out as the rebuilding effort begins. Clearly, as we're going to see throughout this chapter, there is unity. Unity. Seen in phrases like next to them, next to him, after them, after him. 
showing that the people had joined together in such a way where there would be no gap in the building process, not even the smallest section left broken down because where one person, one group ended, another was there to meet and step in and keep the work going where every inch of the wall and every single gate would be rebuilt and strengthened. The people were partnering together with the Lord in his plan to remove them from the place of great distress and reproach That word reproach meaning disgrace that they had been in into a place of flourishing, a place of peace, of security, of strength, with their witness restored. A lot is going to happen between the beginning of the building project in chapter 3 verse 1 and it being finished in chapter 6 verse 15. But I do want to give a spoiler right up front that the total time that it ended up taking for the walls and the gates to all be rebuilt was only 52 days. This massive project, even with all the opposition that's still yet to come, because the work was being done by God's help through the hands of God's people, is only going to take 52 days. 52 days to fix, to do what could not be done in 92 years of the people being back in Jerusalem after returning from exile. I mean, that just to me is just proof the Lord was in it. The Lord was in it. And I think about us. I think about the things that we feel like, because, you know, you, you see people who they've spent their whole lives in a place of, like, ruin, destructive behavior, and and you know, sowing into things that are, are just, it's, they've reaped the whirlwind, maybe so to speak. And all these years, and it can be so easy to feel like, man, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take me just as much time to, to see the, the Lord to do a work of healing, a, a work of restoration, to, to kind of reverse all the years that preceded that. But this should remind us that that doesn't have to be the case. If God's in it, It doesn't have to take the same amount of time to fix it. God can do it in the shortest amount of time in a way that that may be even unexpected because God is able to do those sorts of things. He did it here with the Jews in Jerusalem. This should reinforce a deep hope, a deep confidence in our God that no matter how broken, how damaged Things might be in our lives or in a family or a marriage or a community or whatever that might be that God is able and he desires to accomplish the work of rebuilding and renewal and revival and restoration that's needed no matter how bad things may seem or how big the issues might be that he can bring beauty from ashes can bring life where things just seem dead and beyond hope. And that he wants to use his people, his church, us to partner in his desire to bring those things about. And so I don't want us to gloss over here. We're, we're going to actually read through every single verse, not all at one time. But there's so much value here. This isn't just like, Oh man, because it can be tedious when you're getting into names and places and a gate, a name of a gate or a, 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 a section of wall, a tower. It's like, what does this have to do with my life? 
right? If you've read through certain places in the Old Testament, you're like, oh my gosh, I just read through two chapters of a lineage. God, what do you want to speak to me? But there are things here for us that I pray that we'll, we'll take away this morning. So with all that context in mind, let's read verses 1 through 5. And as I've said, I'll say up front, um, none of us are actually saying any of these names right. Unless you speak Hebrew and you know how to say it in the original language with the right intonation, we're all just rolling with it, okay? So there's the level of grace here if I don't pronounce it the way that you think I should. Verse 1, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Also the sons of Hasana built the fish gate. They, they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Verse 5, next to them, the Dekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. I love that right away in verse 1, the first things we read are that the high priest and the other priests are the ones who were the first to put their hands to this good work. These spiritual leaders were not above physical tasks. But, but with that, I also say that they understood that these physical tasks we're still accomplishing a spiritual work that would bring glory to the Lord. Remember those emblems of praise and salvation were lying in ruin. The gates and the walls of Jerusalem that were meant to be a witness to the, to the nations that surrounded the Israelites. They were, there was to be a witness there that had been in ruin. They understood that, yeah, it's physical. Yeah, we're, we're, we're having to carry these loads and load up these stones and fit everything into place. And, and it, it could seem really tedious and just completely unspiritual that, that it was accomplishing a spiritual end. And man, if, if these gates are back up, if these walls are back up, that, that God is going to move in such a way to, to actually help restore the spiritual life and vitality of the nation of Israel and restore the witness that's been a disgrace, a reproach. That these things would help the people of the Lord to flourish. It would cause the people in the city to once again be the witness God desired his people to be. A, a witness that would draw people to praise the God of Israel and desire his salvation. And notice where the building, or we might say the rebuilding, first started in verse 1, at the sheep gate. Now, I'm not going to go through, there's 10 total gates listed in this chapter. There was 12 total gates that surrounded the, the city of Jerusalem. Two of them are not listed here, but they're actually mentioned in other parts of 
the book of Nehemiah. But the sheep gate, and I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to go into all the details of every gate, but specifically the sheep gate was where the sacrificial sheep would pass through to be brought to the temple to be sacrificed in worship to the Lord. See, this gate that was crucial in many ways to the worship life of the people was burned to the ground, which no doubt affected the people being able to freely and easily come to the temple to make their sacrifices, which means that at least to a certain degree, the worship life of the people had been hindered because this gate lie in ruin. Lay, lie, lay in ruin. And, and how awesome and how important it was that this gate be rebuilt first. That the priests, as they took the lead on the rebuilding efforts, prioritized making sure that this gate was rebuilt first and that everything else to follow in the rebuilding work of the walls and the gates would flow from this gate because it, it speaks to that greater spiritual picture of what God is desiring, that we would love and worship Him above all. We would love and worship Him first. The first place they started to rebuild was the place that you and I always have to start with in our own lives, in our families. Our worship of the Lord is God really first? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Because all the other things, he has a way of making fall in place when the first things, the most important things, are in their right order. And this was going to be true of the rebuilding effort as well. Let's restore the gate so that the sacrifices could happen like God intended them to happen so that the people could come and worship like God desired them to worship. And God does those same things with us. He'll, he'll focus on that area in our life that maybe we're stumbling over. It's, it's, it's hindering us from being able to really worship him like he deserves, loving him like he deserves to be loved. And he'll focus on that place first. Let's clear away the rubble. Let's take away the things that are, that are keeping you and me from really being able to approach him and worship him. We see that they not only built the sheep gate, but they consecrated it, meaning they dedicated it to God in a special way. I, I like what pastor and Bible commentator David Gutzik said about this consecration. He said, the idea behind consecration is to recognize something as special, as uniquely set apart for God's glory and service. These city gates were made especially for God. Nehemiah and Eliashib knew that God wanted everything set apart exclusively for him, including these city walls and gates. Because the first of the work was specifically set apart to God, it was a way for them to say, all of this work belongs to you, Lord. This is a special work done for you. This is a great secret, he says, to joy and success in life, to do everything as if doing it for the Lord. 
And whatever you do, Colossians 3.17, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Such a needed perspective for us to keep, to do everything as if doing it for the Lord. Now in verse 4, we see the word repairs being used, and it's going to be used 35 times in this chapter. That word repair means to make strong and firm. This lets us know that not one part of the rebuilding effort was done carelessly or with the aim of just doing it quickly. You ever seen something go up and you're like, wow, that was quick, but it's like, man, the that was some really shoddy craftsmanship. Like they, they cut corners. They didn't follow the right kind of, you know, building protocols and things that are to be in place. And, and, and so quickness ends up leading to something not being quite as strong, not being able to have the right kind of longevity that maybe initially could have happened if there was care, if, if what was going into it was like, no, let's do this so that this thing is as strong and firm and long-lasting as possible, not just to the elements, but even to any enemy forces that might come against us. This wall is going to stand. All of it was done in such a way where what was being built or rebuilt would be strong and firm and would last. We see not only who did put their hands to the work, but also who did not. Verse 5 tells us about the nobles of the Tekoites. These are people from the town of Tekoa, which was located about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. That while the majority of those of the Tekoites were making repairs, we're, we're told there that their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Now, for me, you know, we could think like, wow, he really put them on blast. No, putting them on blast would have been naming them like he named everybody else in this chapter. So it was, let's talk about who didn't do it. It was Bob and Jim, Ralph, Craig, Ted. There you go. These guys just didn't want to do it. And we'd be like, wow, that was a little harsh, right? Or he just says, they're nobles. You guys know who it is, but they're nobles. The, the nobles there was a reference to members of the ruling class of the city. And this is sad that saw, some saw themselves as being above doing the work of their Lord. And this group is forever inscribed for us in the word of God as those who knew that it was the work of their Lord, but they just wouldn't be involved. They wouldn't submit themselves to what God was wanting them to be a part of. And you know what? They're the ones who missed out. But there will always be some who would rather watch others do the work of the Lord and for whatever reason, excuse themselves from putting their shoulders to the work of their Lord. But we can't let the lack of involvement of some discourage us from being involved in the work that God has clearly called us to be a part of. Now, let's continue on, verses 6 through 14. 
verse 6, Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired the old gate. I think it was just old. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and next to them, Melatiah the Gibeonite, Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhea, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Judea, the son of Haramath, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, made repairs. Try to say that five times fast. Malchijah, the son of Haram, verse 11, and Hashab, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section, as well as the tower of the ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halahesh, leader of the half district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. That was the stinkiest gate around. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Hasarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. In verse 8, we find the first people listed who were noted as being skilled in certain trades. But notice that they aren't noted as being skilled in construction work. One was one of the goldsmiths, meaning that there was like a group of goldsmiths. There's just one guy among the goldsmiths. And then there's the other guy who's part of the perfumer group. He works on perfumes. This guy's like, gets the spices and he gets the oils and that's his job. That's what he does for a living. He, he does that. And yet these people were used by God to fortify Jerusalem. You know, it's important we know, or maybe we know it, but we need to be reminded that God doesn't need us to have a certain type of skill set or schooling to be used by him to build in the things of his kingdom. David Gutzik said that the most important ability is the work, uh, uh, sorry, the most important ability in the work of the Lord is availability. Availability. We don't see that any of these people were like, they're the ones we would think would be doing the work. They'd be the ones heading it up. This is what they do for a living. They work with timber. They work with stones. They're masons. That's the people. But instead, we see priests. What were these guys doing? They were dealing with the sacrifices. They were focused on praying for the people. They were dealing with the incense and the showbread and you know, making sure that the washings of the, with the bronze laver were happening, like that's their job. That was what they did. We don't, you know, these weren't like, oh, this is my side. Everyone like has a side hobby nowadays, right? Like they do their thing, but they also are pretty good about this other thing they're pretty good at too. 
priests, Levites, goldsmiths, perfumers, some civic leaders, the leaders of half districts are involved in here. There's some merchants listed in this chapter. It was availability that God was going to use. And the same is true for you and me. Now, I, I want us to see that in verse 10, a man named Judea made repairs. He built up a section of the wall that was in front of his own home. People worked on the walls in front of or near to their own homes in a lot of these situations. And there's reasons for why they would work on the areas in front of their home or near their home. I mean, one would be uh, the time that would be spent trying to travel to a different part of the city to, to do work. Uh, another thing might be like, well, I, I might not feel as committed if I'm working over here, but my, my own home is, is, is not really being protected. I'm the, I'm the protector of my home, and I'm way over on the other side, and if something happened, I'm like way out of touch. We don't have cell phones to like, hey, like, can you get me some bread? There's a person trying to break into the house. Any of those sorts of things. And so they were working in, you know, in front of or near their homes here. And we can glean something from this because it's a, a lot easier to want to address the broken down walls in front of someone else's life, their home, than it is to address the broken down walls in front of our own lives, our own home, our own family. A lot easier to see brokenness, to see weakness, to see vulnerability, to see sin in someone else's life and want to point that out than it is to see the brokenness and the weakness and the vulnerability and the sin in our own lives and really let the Lord point those things out to us and deal with those things in us before we try to diagnose what's going on with someone else. We see this clearly in, in what Jesus said about hypocrisy, right? He's like, look, if, if you have a log in your eye, why are you looking at somebody else going, let me help you with that speck? If you went to your optometrist and the person had an eye patch over one eye and the other one you could clearly see that they were partially blind and they're going, you know what, let me perform this really intricate surgery on your eyeball. You'd be like, is there anyone else that can assist at the very least? Like, I'm scared. I'm scared. Like, I don't know about you. I don't even like putting eye drops in my eye. Like, it freaks me out to even have an, a, a drop of eye drop liquid going into my eye. I'm like blinking like a crazy person. But the, but the point... <laughs> The point is, there is something in us where it's so much easier to just go, oh man, I could see what's going on with you. Let me focus what's going on with you, what needs to be fixed, what's wrong. A lot harder to see those things in ourselves. Or we've got something going on in our lives that there's no reason we should be trying to point this other thing out because we're dealing with it with ourselves. There's a hypocritical nature maybe to our, our judgment, our inspection of, of someone else. It can be easier 
to want to focus on building up the wall that's broken down in front of someone else's home, their life, their family, a situation somewhere else, but neglect the broken down section of wall that exists in front of our own home, our life, our family, our marriage, our kids. Our first ministry is in our home. If the wall in front of our home is broken down, God forbid that we be looking at somebody else and going, hey, let's really focus on that. God would say, no, deal with what's right in front of you. Focus on the ministry that God's put around you in your own home. I also want us to see that the work needing to be done was not just a work reserved for the men of the community, but that the women were involved too. In verse 12, we see that a man named Shalom, along with his daughters, made repairs, that they rebuilt the wall where they had been stationed to build. That blesses me because I just have two daughters. I didn't have any sons. We see that setting our hands to this good work, the work of the Lord, the work of building and rebuilding and fortifying is not a work just for some, but that it's a work for all. Something else to point out in these verses is that in verse 13, we're told that one group repaired a thousand cubits of the wall. You know, generally the term of measurement of a cubit uh, equates roughly to about 18 inches. So when we read that they repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, it means that they repaired about 1,500 feet of the wall. Super Bowl Sunday, let's put it in different terms. Five Football fields lengths. That's some serious building. This was not a small task. This was a big task. What could be a daunting and overwhelming task, but it was a task that they set their hands to because they had become convinced and become confident that the God of heaven himself would prosper them in the work that he was calling them to take part in. See, the size of a task does not define whether God is in something or not, or if it'll be successful or not. We need to let God define those things for us, and and we can't let the size of something, especially if the thing God has called us to seems way too big, and it's become intimidating, intimidating to us be the lens that we look through to gauge whether we're going to step into something or maybe continue in something we've already stepped into. No, we have to let the God of heaven himself, the one who's infinitely bigger and stronger and able to provide and help and bring something to its fulfillment, to let him be the lens that we look through to gauge whether we're going to step into something or continue in something that we've already stepped into. And just an additional word of encouragement for any who may be in that sort of place, feeling intimidating, uh, intimidated or overwhelmed, to not focus on the 1,500 feet of wall that we've been assigned to. Whatever that work is that God has for us. But to focus on Him and focus maybe on just the foot of wall that He's placed right in front of you and me. Start there. 
and watch him work in and through you in a way where he gets all the glory. But continuing on in verse 15 through 25, verse 15 says, Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, this is a different Nehemiah than the one that we've been considering in the book, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Beth Zur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David, to the man-made pool, and as far as the house of the mighty, which potentially could have been a reference to David's mighty men, maybe the residence where those men lived uh, back in the day. After him, verse 17, the Levites, under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Kela, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren, under Bevi, the son of Henadad, leader of the other half of the district of Kela, made repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebai, carefully repaired the other section, from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, verse 21, the son of, Ur- of Urijah, the son of Koz, repaired another section, from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower, which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, Padea, the son of Parash, made repairs. I want us to see something that began to happen in verses 20 through 24, that people were repairing, they were building sections of the wall that were in front of other people's houses, not just in front of their own homes, including sections near their homes, which would show us that they were focused on what they could do to build the walls in front of their neighbor's homes as well. Now, I already mentioned how it can be easier to want to build the wall in front of someone else's home instead of our own home. But we aren't just called to build the wall in front of our own home, but, uh, but also the wall in front of the home of others too. I was thinking about this, just considering sort of the point in time that we find ourselves in. One of the dangers we can be susceptible to at this point in time, especially with coming out of the pandemic of the past few years, is that we can be more easily, uh, we can more easily be inward focused and reclusive and want to just focus on the rebuilding and renewal and restoration of our own lives or home or family and neglect the work God is calling us to that requires us to be outward focused. 
God desires us to be involved in the lives of others where we're focused on how he might want to use us to help bring about rebuilding and renewal and restoration in the lives of other people. And I want to tell you right now, and this is a plug for home groups, it's a great place to start to see God do that. Sunday mornings, man, it's so quick. Come, you see somebody, start to get into conversation. Oh, the songs are starting. Let's got to find our seat. And then afterwards, like, oh, I got to pick up my kids. There's teardown going on. That depth of relationship, that, that, um, that, that time and the space for real body ministry to happen is so limited on Sunday mornings if that's all our Christianity is limited to. Home groups are such a great opportunity to get involved in other people's lives, other people to have access to your life, for us to be able to interact with one another, to go on a deeper level than just like, how are you doing? Which, do we even really want to know how someone else is doing? Hopefully we do when we ask that, but sometimes we ask knowing that it's going to be quick. How are you doing? What's what's the person going to say? Doing good. Doing okay. You're like, hashtag blessed. Okay, cool. See you later. They're not really good. They're not really okay. And they're not really hashtag blessed, as Jared said. But it's that quick thing. It's like, I don't really want to get into it. I don't really have the time. Guys, we need to have a renewed vision of what Christianity within the body of Christ is supposed to look like. And it's not just us staying in our homes and staying away from other people. And I'm not diminishing like what's happened the last few years. It can't stay in that place. Too many are, are seeing the effects of, of what that's brought about in their own spiritual health. And, and guys, we need to press in. We need to move forward. We need to heed the call of God to be others-focused, others-centered instead of inward-focused and self-centered. Because that work of rebuilding and renewal and restoration, that are, those are things... That God's going, cool, I want to bring that about, but you know how I want to bring it about? You know how I want to answer those prayers? I want to use you in someone else's life, and I want to use someone else in your life to see that come about. But let's read now the the rest of our chapter. Praise God that we actually are making it through all the verses. It's a miracle, really, I feel like. Verse 26. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate. One Bible commentator said, Richard Nixon's favorite, or least favorite gate, the water gate. But um, tink. And, uh, sorry, in front of the water gate toward the east, and on the projecting tower. Just really quick, just a really, just backing up really, really quickly. Um, I don't have a map image to show you of like what the city of Jerusalem looked like at the time of Nehemiah. But if we were to show a map image, what, what's going on here is that the Sheep Gate was in the northeast section of the city. 
And if you were to track it all the way around, what's happening is that they went counterclockwise. This is how Nehemiah decided to organize the people, starting counterclockwise from the sheep gate, going all the way around the city, after him, next to him, after them, next to them. So that every bit from, from gate, wall connecting to next gate, wall connecting to next gate, and all the way around to what we're going to see at verse 32, a complete circuit starting at the sheep gate, ending back at the sheep gate. So just, just to kind of get an idea, just again, just like a kind of a, a stepping back, like a 30,000 foot sort of view of, of what's happening in chapter 3. Verse 27, sorry. Uh, after them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the, si- the sixth son, of Zaloph repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate, and as far as the upper room at the corner. And between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. You know, while it can be easy to focus on the family unit dynamic of building that clearly took place that we've seen in different parts of this chapter, it's important to see that it, it wasn't only married people and family units who built, but that single people who lived by themselves built also. In verse 30, we're told that a man named Meshulam the son of Berechiah made repairs in front of his dwelling, and that word dwelling means his room. He didn't have a home like other people had. He had a, a room, which could have been something more like an apartment in that day. The reason I point that out is because our usefulness in the kingdom of God does not start the moment a person gets married or starts their own family, nor is it diminished by a lack of being married or having a family. Both the married person and the single person are valuable in the eyes of God and valuable to the advancement of the kingdom of God. I think Meshulam is a great example even that we don't need a big house or a lot of space to be a blessing and a witness. Whatever we have, whether that's just a room or an apartment or a small home or a big home or a mobile home or whatever that looks like, the list can go on, can be used to the glory of God. The glory of God. Also, the things contained in this chapter should remind us that the work of rebuilding and renewal and revival and restoration that God is wanting to do is meant to be a community effort. These people came together in unity. 
around this man, Nehemiah, who had this amazing prayer life and trust in God, believing that God's hand was in all of this to rebuild what was broken and to strengthen what was weak. And what a sweet picture of a unified group this is. Being about one another, looking for spots that are unattended and broken down and weak, not just looking at the wall in front of their home, but also the wall in front of others' homes and going and building, strengthening there, working together for the good of others. And this is what Jesus is desiring us to do as his church. Check out what Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 19. He said, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify, build up, that word means, another. What are we pursuing? Man, we could pursue a lot of things, right? That aren't actually the things that God's saying, I want you to pursue it. The things that make for peace, the things by which one may build up, strengthen another, You know, it's not that we are to look around critically at those around us trying to find faults, gaps, brokenness, but being prayerful about how we might edify, how we might build someone else up in the Lord. And then as God shows us something or gives us the opportunity that we pour into others, we strengthen, we encourage, we minister to one another, to others, so that the spiritual wall of their life will be built up and made firm. I believe God wants to challenge us, to stir us, to encourage us, to charge us, to step up in these days to be about others, to build one another up, to strengthen areas which might be weak, to minister in areas of brokenness, to pray for and encourage one another, and to help others stand firm in this spiritual battle. And there's, I feel, a lot more that could be gleaned from this chapter, but I'm gonna have the worship team come back up. In closing, I think our response, just like the children of Israel, should be the same. We consider the things that God is going to look like. You're seeing what's around you. You're seeing what's right in front of you. You're seeing maybe even the mess that's inside of you. But instead of being discouraged, instead of feeling intimidated, instead of feeling defeated, to even take a step forward because, man, that 1,500 feet of wall is just, how am I even going to, how is this even going to happen? How will this ever get finished? How will anything be different? How is anything going to change? That instead of being overwhelmed by the full picture of what maybe we feel like needs to happen, that we would become confident in our God, convinced by our God in such a way where we would say, let us rise up and build. Now, these people understand for 92 years, we're not 
going, let us rise up and build. They were going, let us sit down and settle in. But God wanted to bring them out of that. And maybe for you and me, we're seeing areas in our life, areas in our family, if we have that, areas in our job with coworkers, area in our neighborhood, area, areas in our community, where, where God's making something clear to us that we would be able to go, Lord, I want to rise up and build. But would you, the God of heaven, cause this to prosper? Lord, would you, the God of heaven, give me the power, the strength, the grace, the endurance, the gifts of your spirit to be able to step in and be that repairer, that builder? Because there's so many people who are just tearing things down in our day. God is calling us to be people who build things up. And there is no better place for that to happen than in the spiritual lives, the spiritual health of people. And it's got to start with us. What's the sheep gate look like for you and me? Are there things hindering us from really being able to worship the Lord the way that he deserves to be worshiped? Is there rubble that needs to be cleared away? Is there just an ash heap somewhere where God's going, look like that's not what I've intended for your life? That he's wanting to do a work of, of building, of strengthening, of shoring up a gap so that that sheep gate is all that he desires it to be. The worship life of, of you, of your, your marriage, of your family, would be exactly as God desires it to be. This is not a condemning word. Nehemiah doesn't drop the hammer on the people. You blew it. It's all your fault. Things are never going to get better. You did this to yourselves. All the responsibility is on you. No, he goes, we have reproach. We're dealing with brokenness. Let us rise up and build. And God would say the same things to us. He's not looking to just drop the hammer. He's going, look, I want to come alongside you. I want to do a work in you. But there does have to be a response of faith, a response of willingness, a response of obedience, a response maybe of availability that God's looking for from each of us this morning. I'm excited for what God's doing in our day. God's working. He's moving. He's doing something. Would we not be like the nobles of the Decoites who just said, you know what? Not for me. You guys do it. You guys do the work of the Lord, but not us. We're going to sit back. We're going to watch. Would we not be those people? Would we be right on the front lines of what God's wanting to do? All in with what the Spirit of God is wanting to do in and through our lives and in and through our church. Amen? Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, thank you so much. Lord, for what you did with these people in Jerusalem. God, how you 
were taking them out of that place, Lord, where they had just settled in to all the brokenness. Lord, wanting to bring them out of that to a place of of rebuilding and renewal and revival and restoration. That God, this community effort, Lord, how you blessed it, how you were in it, how you used it, 52 days, Lord, that's, that is just insane to think about what these people accomplished because God, you were with them. You were helping, Lord. You were present. And God, would you cause us as a church in these days to have that same sort of unity, Lord. God, to to be involved in all that you desire us to be a part of. That kingdom work, that work of building, that work of strengthening. And so God, would you lead us in these days, Lord, for those who are dealing with damage in their own lives. God, maybe it's things that they did to themselves. Maybe it's something that someone else did to them. Lord, would you clear away the rubble? Lord, would you bring beauty from ashes? Lord, where everything just seems dead and beyond hope, Lord, bring life once again. Revive, Lord God. Bring healing Bring health. Lord, bring reconciliation. Lord, bring greater godliness, purity and holiness. Lord, just a passionate desire to love and worship you and to serve you, Lord, with all of our lives. And if you're here this morning and you don't just first have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ... You know, I've said this before in the past, but the ultimate wall builder was Jesus. He did what no one else could do. He made a way where no one else could between us and the Father. That way to be saved. That way to be brought out of that place of shame and disgrace into a place of life and abundance and peace and hope and forgiveness, and that's what God is still desiring to do today for any who will humble themselves and and repent of their sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And if that's anybody this morning and you're going, look, I want my sins forgiven. I want my debt paid. I want my shame erased. I want my place in heaven secured that that is available for any today who will open their hearts and surrender to Jesus Christ. Is that anybody this morning? Would you raise your hand if that's you? And you're going, look, would you pray for me? I want Jesus in my life. I want his salvation. I need his grace. Is that anybody this morning? Well, Lord, would you continue, Lord, in this time of praise, of response, Lord, as we sing these songs, as we take of the communion elements, Lord, as, as there's prayer counselors available to pray for any prayer needs, God, continue, 
Lord, to build up in us, Lord, those things that need to be built. Lord, do that work of strengthening. And God, lead us in this coming week. Give us eyes to see one another. Give us your love for one another. We thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.